0: Hi, everyone. This is Alex Epstein, host of Power Hour, introducing another best of Power Hour episode while I am working on finishing the moral case for fossil fuels 2.0. So this week's best of is Dr. Judith Curry, a climate scientist on the state of climate science. And I think there are three big values you can expect to get from listening to or re-listening to this episode. One is that She gives some valuable explanations of different issues in climate science. Another is that you get to learn a lot about the state of climate science and, in particular, how it works in the academic world and the government funding world. And I think it's really important to understand how different kinds of what I'll call knowledge systems work in terms of the systems that generate the knowledge or claims to knowledge that then we hear through leading knowledge sources, such as the New York Times, other mainstream media outlets, different government agencies, different corporations. It's really interesting to learn about some of the behind the scenes that might be very different in nature than you suspect. And then the third value is, I think, Judith Curry has shown a lot of courage in how she's conducted her career and standing up to different forces that were not in her immediate career interest to stand up to. But she did it, I believe, as far as I can tell, because she really believed that it was right. And she's gotten a lot of criticism, but also a lot of positive recognition for her courage. So I think that's another big value. Okay, hope you enjoy this episode and we'll be back next week with another Best of Power Hour. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. This week we're going to be talking with one of the, what we can call, rising stars in the challenge to climate catastrophism. Now, she is a long-established climate scientist, so she's not any kind of new graduate or anything like that. Uh, But in the last, at least in my in my viewing, five or so years, Judith Curry, uh, a climate scientist, has become extremely public about many of the flaws and problems in the practice of modern climate science, and she has given some really fascinating analysis of what's going on, what's behind it, how to fix it. Uh, Now recently she has been talking about and writing about something that I think is, is truly horrific, even by the the corrupt standards of of many people in the modern climate science establishment, which is the use of racketeering slash anti-mafia laws to prosecute either climate scientists who dissent from catastrophism or companies who fund research dissenting from catastrophism or companies who promote fossil fuels. Just a whole bunch of things which really go, go to show how much this field has devolved. So it's one thing for an outsider to say that. It's another thing for an insider to say that. I think you'll really enjoy what Dr. Curry has to say. So we will be joined by her on the other side. Enjoy.
1: Hour. hour, because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex
0: Epstein. We are joined now by Dr. Judith Curry, professor and former chair of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences at Georgia Tech, president of Climate Forecast Applications Network and proprietor of the blog Climate, etc. Dr. Curry, welcome to Power Hour. Well, it's a pleasure to join you today. All right. Well, you've become more and more prominent over the years, at least in terms of my my reading and hearing. And you have one of these interesting journeys where you know, I think you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it went from sort of a more mainstream conventional accepted opinion on some of these climate issues to an opinion that gets you a lot of flack from a lot of people. So I, and I'm sure the listeners, would just kind of love to hear your arc of how you got involved in climate science and then how you became this, I'd say progressively notorious figure (laughs) in certain circles.
1: Well, when I started my graduate research in the 70s, Uh, 1970s I was working on issues related to what's going on in the Arctic and so I wasn't really considering myself a climate scientist at that time but things in the Arctic quickly became you know very relevant to climate change and I became more engaged in climate research and I was comfortably ensconced in the ivory tower until 2005 In fact, um, September 2005. If you recall, this is the time of Hurricane Katrina. And through a sheer fluke, I was a co-author on a paper about hurricanes and global warming that ended up being published two weeks after Hurricane Katrina hit. Okay, so there was a massive amount of publicity, and although, you know, human cause of this was not really a big part of the paper. That became the big part of the story, and everybody wanted to know, oh, are humans causing hurricanes to become more intense? And so I and my co-authors, you know, we hadn't been involved in the public debate on climate change. You know, we figured out, well, how are we gonna handle this? And at that point, we made a decision that it was the responsible thing to do to, was to support the IPCC consensus. You know, this was, you know, a huge effort undertaken by hundreds of our colleagues, you know, over multiple years to do this assessment report. And whether we agreed or not with everything in it, we felt it was the responsible thing to do to support the consensus. So, you know, I had a lot of media interviews um, for a few years during that period. And, you know, we were supporting the on the climate consensus. I got burned by a misquote in the Wall Street Journal. I said, okay, I've had enough. I've done my part. You know, my 15 minutes turned into, you know, months and years. Okay, I'm done, you know, so I wasn't doing any more interviews. But I started participating in the climate blogosphere. I was spending some time commenting on various blogs, and I landed on one of the skeptical blogs, Steve McIntyre's blog, Climate Audit. And I started engaging with them, and I had some very interesting discussions. Some of those people were very intelligent and very interested in digging into the data and interested in the details, etc. So I was, you know, pleasantly surprised. So I was on the front lines. I don't know if you remember ClimateGate. In 2009? Uh, yeah, of okay. course. And,
0: and the, the, we've had uh, Ross McKittrick on the show. So oh, my. Okay,
1: it. wonderful. Okay, so I was on the front lines when that broke, and my, re, my immediate reaction was, oh, my gosh, what an enormous black eye this is on climate science. So I was trying to speak up to try, okay, we need to do better. Okay, we need to be more transparent. We need to make data available. Um, We need to do a better job of understanding and characterizing uncertainty, and we need to engage with skeptics. We can't just demonize them. And most of all, we should not, um, (laughs) we need to play by the rules. We shouldn't try to, you know, to sabotage the peer review process, or um, sabotage individuals we don't like, or try to bypass the rules of the IPCC. So, you know, I thought these were motherhood and apple pie kind of <laughs> statements and that other scientists would be joining me, but silence. In fact, I was... So, so just,
0: yeah. Dr. Curry, what, in, in what forum were you making these uh, views known when you say that people were silent? Was it private? Okay,
1: it... okay. what I did is I, I posted a blog post on climate audit. Okay, Um, and that was the first thing, got attention, and then I posted another one, and Andy Revkin at New York Times picked that one up, you know, and then I uh, started to get some attention, and then I published some other ones, and it was picked up by the Physics Today journal, and and so I was, you know, getting more and more attention, and my concern while I was going through this, and, and the way I saw my colleagues react, nobody was you know trying to make things right and you know all of a sudden i became the bad guy and the more i looked at this and thought about it and saw all the sausage making that went into creating this consensus you know the more i thought oh you know this is why should i (laughs) be supporting this you know suborning my own judgment you know in favor of this consensus so i said no i'm not going to do that anymore i'm going to take a look myself and dig into every little thing myself and make my own judgments. So I started doing this, and part of the story of this episode became me. Um, Scientific American did like a six-page spread in 2010 on me. Um, I think the title was Climate Heretic Judith Curry Turns on Her Colleagues, (laughs) okay, so you know, People were really upset that I was speaking out and engaging with s- skeptics, talking to people like Ross McKittrick and Steve McIntyre. And so I quickly got sort of ostracized and pushed into the other camp. And in 2010, I started my own blog, Climate Etc., at com-, dot com, so I could document Uh, you know, my explorations into trying to understand this, and uncertainty was a major theme of the blog in the early days, and it still is, and I had this whole series of posts, um, the so-called uncertainty monster series of posts, that I think was quite provocative and made people think, but, you know, talking about uncertainty really plays into the merchants of doubt meme, and they said, oh, she's one of them, you know, one of these terrible people that's trying to deny science and trying to stop action to mitigate climate change, neither of which is true. So, you know, I, you know, can have continually been ostracized, and now people are coming around to agreeing with much of what I've had to say, but I'm still ostracized by a certain segment of the community. And it's definitely hurt me professionally. So um, I've decided, well, I need a new peer group. (laughs) So I've uh, found a new group of people to interact with, uh, people from other fields, people from other walks of life that I'm engaging with, um, in some cases collaborating with on publications, going to Workshops and meetings well outside my field. And so I've um, Broadened out into some very interesting directions Um, And my former peers seem (laughs) Pretty irrelevant at the moment So I'm off and running sort of in a new career direction through this fluke of climate gate really
0: Well, that's that's an amazing story, and I think that, that there's so many issues that are, are raised by that that we can go into. So one thing that occurs to me is that you know, at the beginning of the interview, I gave your, your different titles, but I think particularly most relevant is your title of professor at a university. And what I'm thinking of is what would have happened and what would have been the incentive system had a younger Judith Curry who wasn't yet you know tenured, let alone full professor, at a major university, what would happen to a younger version of you who had the exact same thing happen and started having these doubts? Uh, what would she come up against and how would it affect her career?
1: Well, I received many emails from the kind of person that you described saying, thank God somebody is speaking up. I can't speak up because of X, Y, Z. I'm a government employee. You know, I have a mortgage and three young kids, you know, I can't afford to jeopardize my job, you you know, and on and on it went. Uh, So there were any number of people who, you know, wish they could speak out, but, you know, didn't want to jeopardize their employment. And. It, it's really become, you know, at university, you know, Georgia Tech is relative. You know, I'm in a, a red state in the southeast U.S. It, it's not like being in California or the northeast or whatever. So it, it's a somewhat friendlier environment um, at Georgia Tech. But it's still not. And a lot of the engineers at Georgia Tech um really like what I'm saying, but a few of the people in my own department really, really don't like what I'm saying. So, you know, there's been a big mixed reaction and um, sort of my administrative (laughs) career at Georgia Tech is sort of over, um, largely because of um, these positions, I believe. Um, So... Yeah, I've been very lucky to be tenured and fairly senior, Or if I had to retire, I could afford to retire. But young scientists are not in this position. And academia is becoming less and less a place for academic freedom and a fair and honest place for an open debate. Um, it's becoming pretty politically correct in some ways that are very unfortunate.
0: One aspect, that I find particularly disturbing that, that came up as you were giving your, your account of your own story is the binary nature of how people are taught to think about a, a predictive science in many cases. That is, there's either you agree with, quote, the science or not. And yet a lot of your work seems to be about, or at least your public work about, well, I disagree with you on the extent of climate sensitivity, but it, it seems like within a science, Particularly where it's predictive and you don't have exact two point one x or something like that, this is just in the nature of things. so how do they how do they justify saying you know you're you're sort of with us or against us when a proper science of this kind would necessarily have a wide range of values okay. attributed? It's no longer about science, it's about policy it's its it's it's
1: speaking consensus to power, okay as a result of this consensus, okay. It's politically powerful. There's lots of funding. They have seats at very important tables. People have made their careers on that. And here I come along saying, oh, but this is, all this is much more uncertain than you're making it out to be. And I threaten them. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> as far as I can tell, that's what's going on. It's just this whole social contract between the scientists and the policymakers. And you know, someone like me comes along, and I'm threatening that.
0: I want to I want to dig into that a bit because I don't think people realize how extensive that is and 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 I like the way you put it because there with politicians there is a certain binary nature to it it's can we pass our policy or not you know can we get what we want at paris or not and the way they like to portray science is science gave all the scientists gave us a thumbs up or 97% of the scientists gave us a thumbs up Im- implicitly on our policy whereas if you have a continuum of views within a science that's that's very messy and doesn't play well politically, and it seems like one of the sins of, the, of many of the scientists is not to, not to acknowledge the complexity and, and of views and, and plausible views, and letting the consensus, the, the sort of the political type scientists, the consensus makers, make these absolute binary statements and to just be quiet, even though they know full well that it doesn't represent the, the true breadth of reasonable opinion.
1: Oh, absolutely. It's a very unfortunate situation, and and all of this is enforced by the professional science societies, nearly all who have put out some sort of a climate change policy statement, urgent action needed. Okay, that has nothing to do with science in terms of what kind of action that is needed or whether or not yeah, it's thank urgent. You,
0: thank you for saying that. It's insane, but they, they act like it's logical for the American physical society to come up with a political conclusion. Exactly, exactly. And and this, um,
1: apart from being wrong, you know, think of what this does. It it gives journal editors, I mean, the the main function of these professional societies is to publish journals. So when you see a statement like that, that gives um, journal editors carte blanche to just reject or not even review papers that question the consensus. Okay, and this is a very big concern about, you know, how you know, apart from all the other biases that can, you know, come in, uh, into science to have an explicit, you know, filter at the journal editor level, enforcing politically correct views is a very dangerous situation for science.
0: I'm curious with these letters that you get, because every, I, I hate the term skeptic, uh, but, you know, every, um, Every non-catastrophist scientist I've spoken to on these issues has said, I get tons and tons of letters and notes from my colleagues, and every time we put out something, we get these. And yet the number of people who speak out who have any prominence is, is you know, very, very small. Is there is there any way to get more of the people speak to speak out? Because it seems like an I am Spartacus situation, where if you got enough, if you had enough stories that all came out on the same day, people might think, wow, there is a... There's a real climate of fear here. There's, there's something wow. wrong. Um, I don't know how to break this log jam.
1: I think in the U.S., um, if the Republicans win the presidency, I think this would shake this up. You know, I'm wondering, you know, if the funding priorities went to funding more research on natural climate variability. You know, would the rats desert the sinking ship and follow the money? Or or do they really have (laughs) the conviction, you know, to um, carry through, you know, pushing for the other thing? So, you know, I just don't know. There's a lot of complex dynamics and a lot of different things going on. Um, So I'm not sure how all this is going to play out. The other thing that can happen, but, you know, in in another five or ten years, if we see this you know, global warming to continue to be slow, um, and this might happen. We're we're looking to see a a shift to the cold phase of the Atlantic multi-decadal oscillation sometime in the 2020s. Um, A lot of solar scientists are predicting solar cooling towards mid-century, so it's possible that we could see a continued slowdown um, of the warming. And this is something that will also give pause. Although there are so many different temperature data sets out and shenanigans with the data, it's hard to, um, you know, what to believe. But the one thing that I will say about all these different temperature, surface temperature data sets, <laughs> is that the error bars that they've assigned to those numbers are way too small. That uh, There's a a whole lot of other things that need to be investigated before we can think that um, the air bars on the global average temperatures are order of a tenth of a degree or
0: even less. I think that's that's worth drilling into for a second because I think there's a perception of w- when people see these global mean temperature anomaly uh, graphs and they, you know, they hear about these surface measurements that it, it it's... It's as if, like, right now in, my, in, in the room I'm in and my condo in Laguna Beach, I have a temperature measurement in this room. Now, granted, it's not that precise, it's just within a degree, but hypothetically, I could have one much more precise. I think people think the equivalent, when we see these temperature numbers, it's the equivalent of there's somehow one perfect thermometer that knows the exact temperature versus understanding how these things are constructed. So, could you talk a little bit about how they're constructed and why the error bar is significant? Well, the measurements
1: themselves are non-trivial, especially in the ocean. Um, What you really want is the... Over land, you measure surface air temperature at a height of about six feet, and over the ocean, you're measuring a surface temperature or something, you know, as much as 10 or 15 feet below the surface. And so there's a a murky definition even of what the surface really is, and the temperatures can vary quite a bit, and there's different methods of making the measurements, and there's biases. Ships give different measurements than buoys do, so you have to adjust to eliminate bias. And then the satellites, um, you know, have different temperatures again, and there's all this adjustment and bias bias adjustment and then homage and then other unless it's a satellite you actually don't have global coverage so you need to make some assumptions about what's going on in the areas where you don't have any data and on and on it goes so so there's all these assumptions that you have to make and so even if you had a perfect measurement it's just at a point and the globe is a pretty big place and you know even if at your own house, you go out in the front yard and take a measure the temperature and you go out in the backyard and you measure the temperature. And it might be rather different depending on, you know, whether, which is in the sun, which is in the shade, uh, you know, at what kind of ground cover, whether you have a big blacktop driveway in the front and grass in the back, etc. So all these little things make non-trivial differences in the temperature and trying to make sense, you know, and turn this into a global average, it's not real easy. No one questions that overall temperature is increasing, um, but by how much and how to interpret some of the variations and how to interpret the disagreements among different data sets, there's a lot of things we don't understand. And, And the thing that's been on the table is that since, about 1998, the temperatures haven't been warming as fast as expected by the climate models. Um, And, you know, this is causing people to question the climate models. And then people who like the climate models are questioning the data. And so it's a good thing for everybody to be questioning everything. But, um, you know, claims that we can measure globally averaged surface temperature to within a 10th of a degree, I think is, personally, I think it's rather a joke.
0: As you were saying that, I thought, so these these are all difficult enterprises. I mean, certainly modeling the climate system, I would say, is beyond difficult. Uh, and, you know, getting accurate surface temperature um, measurements and, and knowing what to do with them is, is difficult. And it just occurred to me that if I was a researcher, on either of those issues and I turned in either surface temperature measurements that made it seem like there was much less severe warming than people thought or a model that predicted much less severe warming. I cannot imagine how that would be good for my career, e- even if I was right.
1: Um... To some extent. It depends on who you are. What, okay. Now, now, the guys who measure atmospheric temperature from satellites, this way you get a global coverage, John Christie and Roy Spencer, okay, they're frequently called deniers, skeptics, or whatever. Um, people don't like the data set. They have shown no warming at all since 1998. Uh, big spike in temperatures in 1998, and then it dropped back down, and it's been pretty flat ever since. Um, So they get called lots of nasty names um, for doing, I think, some very good work, just because we, we can't understand why the temperatures in the Atmosphere should be different than the temperatures of the surface doesn't necessarily mean that they're wrong or they're deniers or they're whatever. So that's an example of two scientists who frequently get the denier label um, for producing, doing a lot of hard work, even winning NASA Special Achievement Awards for their research and everything. Um, You know, they get lots of nasty things are said about
0: them. Well, but even with those guys, I think there's a lucky anomaly in that I, we've had John Christie on the show and, and I've talked to Roy Spencer before. Uh, I mean, you have those. To my knowledge, they are they are innovators, and that that center at, at University of Alabama Huntsville is is innovative, and they're some of the pioneers in this realm. And it's it's not it's not as crowded seemingly, or it it, it, it seems like they've been able to create this objective way of measuring things that's hard to corrupt. Versus, mm-hmm. say, if I worked at, uh, you know, for Hanson or uh, or Gavin at NASA and I had this <laughs> other approach, it doesn't seem like it would be very welcome. And, and even as prominent as Hanson is or was, it's his funders, the government funders are not going to be very happy if they come in with an oops, we're wrong. There's not a crisis here. That's not that's that's. People are very invested in there being a crisis. Well, I don't think the existence
1: of a crisis rests on the surface temperature record. I mean, it's it. We've been warming, you know, for over three hundred years since <laughs> you know coming out of the Little Ice Age. Um, why we've been warming for three hundred years? Why there was a big warming jump from nineteen oh five to nineteen forty? Nobody's really explained that satisfactorily. So just the warming itself, or or. Oh, a warmest year or whatever is no particular reason to be alone. Um, and, and if you're worried about, you know, extreme weather events, hurricanes, flood, droughts, heat waves, things were much worse in the U.S. in the 1930s and the 1950s. And you'd never believe that to listen to the uh, news reports today.
0: Yeah. That, and, and and yeah, I definitely didn't mean to imply that that the current data, even as uh, you know whatever to the extent it's manipulated, justifies the the conclusions. But any 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 departure from the narrative casts doubt. So even the pause, as they call it, or at least yeah. the slowdown, that much has been made of that by people challenging the the catastrophes narrative, and they have vent over backwards I would say the absolute least to come up with different interpretations to say why their basic narrative is still sound and there's just uh, they're just gleeful when they can say oh it there's some report to the effect of oh it turns out there was never any pause but they were and they're looking for that constantly so it's just that any any chink in the narrative is really fought off hard at least in the public debate I haven't been in the scientific yeah. trenches well, in the scientific
1: trenches, there's a lot of interesting work going on. It stimulated a lot of uh, good research on the ocean, what's going on with the oceans and how this is influencing global temperature and circulation patterns and stuff like that. So there's a lot of research that... Good research by prestige scientists that can be woven into a rather skeptical narrative. Um, but... Um, in the public debate, no, you know, you, you still get people saying the pause didn't exist, the climate models are doing perfectly well, and so on and so forth, and it just isn't true.
0: I'm thinking again of the the young person coming into the field. I, in fact, I have a friend who was, got a PhD in the field and and decided not to go into it, and he was he he told me that he he just Felt like if he actually said his views, he would get in a lot of trouble. And he was here uh, on, I forget what it's called, but some, some sort of, he's from another country. So uh-huh. he felt like yeah. his, his very residency would be at risk because he's here as a qualified climate scientist. And of course, if he challenges climate catastrophism, he's not a qualified climate scientist. I'm, I'm just wondering, are there any specific stories you can share about young people that you've heard from to give? Because people have no idea well, what goes on.
1: Yeah, I, I can share some stories, albeit anonymously, because I don't. Yeah.
0: <laughs> no, want I to. Guess. Okay. I don't want Joe, you know, Joe Smith. Okay, from...
1: th- th- there's one that I can think of who was rather outspoken. Even as a graduate student, he was involved in blogs and and whatever, and he was, I guess, on the skeptical side. And when he graduated, um, he took a postdoc. And then when he started thinking about what he's going to do next, you know, and what he was interested in a faculty position in universities, and he couldn't imagine a place where he would be happy, let alone uh, where they would actually hire him. And he ended up in the private sector, still doing atmospheric science, and he's actually doing very well, certainly making a lot more money. Um, Another example was a postdoc at one of the, you know, prestige programs. And he wrote to me saying that he had come up, you know, done a research study that showed that, you know, most of this warming has really been caused by the oceans. And he said he was advised by his two postdocs mentors don't publish this this will be the end of your career not that they didn't like his paper but they were just giving him a realistic read you know of what it was like in the field and my advice to him was to change the title of his paper and change the abstract so it was less sort of you know in your face with you know the headline conclusion and try to get it published, and I encouraged him to um, stay in the field. The paper did get published, and it did get some pretty good press, um, and I think he's, you know, working working around this, and I think he's still in the field right now. But um, another story, someone who got his Ph.D., and then just, Left the field for the financial sector, knowing that there is no way that the career he wanted in meteorology and atmospheric sciences was going to work for him because he wasn't buying the IPCC consensus. So he, you know, it broke his heart to leave the field because he really loves all this stuff, but now he's working in the financial sector. So it's not a very friendly situation. For scientists, particularly young scientists.
0: It reminds me of, of the situation that has occurred historically when you have a government-created monopoly and just a normal, normal business, where if there's really only one business in a field and it's mandated, then that imposes a lot of difficulty on any free-thinking person in the field because they have to either tow the company line or they... You know, have to keep silent, but if they disagree, and certainly if they disagree publicly, they can get fired. Versus a competitive system where there are lots of different institutions, is is totally different. I'm curious what you think of that analogy.
1: Uh, that's a good one. And there's, I, I've just joined this group of social scientists who are trying to fight against this kind of, you know, these knowledge monopolies and politically correct thinking at university. Again, that's a good
0: it? term, knowledge monopoly.
1: Right, and it, it's, the group is called Heterodox Academy, heterodoxacademy.org. It's a new group, and we'll see how it evolves, but this is a kind of thing that they're trying to fight against. Apparently it's rampant um, in the social science, in academic uh, law schools, um, and so on, not just in what I would, you know, I'm the token environmental you know, kind of scientists in this group. So they're, I'm trying to educate them um, about some of the issues that we face, hoping that they'll do some, stimulate some research related to the kind of environmental and climate change political correctness. But it's an issue all over the, you know, across many different fields in universities. Um, and it's a big problem because disagreement and diversity of perspectives is what really drives the field forward. Um, It makes us question our beliefs and our interpretation of evidence, and it seeds the field with new ideas, and that's really important for scientific progress, and it's being stifled.
0: Well, that leads into a topic that you've written about recently, and I've been thinking about a lot recently. I'll probably write about soon. Um, And just to give some some background there's this this broad narrative that the evil fossil fuel industry is hiring Shill scientists to manipulate the data and undercut the absolutely certain international uh, consensus and just uh, and and then recently there have been uh, there's been this proposal by a certain senator and then uh, 20 self-proclaimed scientists who uh, I mean, actual scientists who I don't think are acting scientifically to talk about using racketeering uh, charges against this. And so I, I want to ask you about this in a second, but just for the record, for, for listeners, and I may have a different opinion than a lot of people, I would just say that I am absolutely in favor of the fossil fuel industry or any industry funding science. They should do it honestly and they should do it openly. Uh, but in in particular, if you, know, you feel like someone else has a monopoly no matter what your industry is, you should challenge it. And it's perfectly legitimate for a, a company who thinks that they have an important product and they think that the the research is skewed against them to fund research. And people can take it with a grain of, of salt. Uh, if they want, they should take everything with a grain of salt. But uh, okay. I just think there's a certain narrative that, oh, the, the fossil fuel industry shouldn't support, say, w- Willie Soon or uh, whomever else. Of course, they're okay if, if it's the Cokes and they support Berkeley Earth. If it comes up with conclusions that they like. But I just want to, for any listeners, because I haven't talked about this before, but anyway, I want to get to Dr. Curry. Uh, Can you give us just the background on this, this RICO thing? Because this is really a a remarkable, in a negative way, uh, development. Okay, I'll start,
1: I guess I'll start with a little bit of a broader perspective. A couple years ago, there was this report written called, Big Oil Goes to College. And it talks about how much money oil companies were sending to colleges, mostly the prestige institutions, you know, the Stanfords and so on. It was an enormous amount of money. I know Georgia Tech um, gets a lot of money from um, oil companies. Um, we have a number of Georgia Power um, endowed chairs at Georgia Tech, for example. Um, ConocoPhillips gives a lot of money to chemical engineering and even one of the faculty members in um, Earth and Atmospheric Sciences and so on and so on. And this is viewed favorably by the university. Um, in this era of declining federal research funds, You know, universities are looking for industry support for research. And I think that's a really good thing. But it seems like the oil company is allowed to fund everything but climate research, um, you know, anytime there's any hint. And, and the oil companies aren't really funding climate research anymore. Um, the, the, I was surprised to hear that Willie soon was getting some money from Southern Company. Um, I just didn't think that the oil companies were and energy companies were funding climate research anymore, and I don't think they are to any considerable extent. Um, If they're fighting climate change legislation, I mean, they're hiring lobbyists. They're not spending their money on climate researchers. So it's a fairly ludicrous thing. Um, In two weeks, I'm giving a talk at some meeting of... Um, the CEOs of power companies in the eastern U.S., and they're paying my travel, and I'm going to talk to them about climate change. So, you know, oops, I'm getting money from the energy sector. Horrors. Well, why shouldn't I, you know, climate scientists go talk um, to this group of influential um, people in the energy sector? Of course climate scientists should do that. Am I going to pay the thousand dollars out of my own pocket for a hotel and airlines and everything else? Of course I'm not. I'm I'm going to ask them to support my travel. And that's the kind of thing that people say, oh, she's in the pocket, you know, of the oil industry. It's ridiculous. You know, if the IPCC and whatever had been engaging with the energy sector and the oil companies right from the get-go and working with them and rather against them. Um, I think this would have had a very different outcome rather than, you know, starting off on day one in the 1990s, you know, saying, you guys are the enemy. Of course, you're not the enemy. Everybody needs power and fuel, um, so it, it, it's sort of a ridiculous situation. Now, the RICO thing by uh, – you should have Naomi Oreskes on your show sometime. That would, I don't know if she would agree. But she was the author of the book Merchants of Doubt, who you know spun this story of how a few corrupt scientists – You know, helped support the tobacco industry, and some of those same scientists are now supporting, you know, climate denialism and the oil companies. And it's a fairly ludicrous book, but the meme has really stuck somehow. And this link between, you know, tobacco and now the 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 oil companies and the climate skeptics are doing the same thing as what we saw in the tobacco. It's it sort of, some people have found this convincing, and apparently these sci- these 20 scientists found Naomi Oreske's Merchants of Doubt narrative convincing. It said, oh, we need to stop this, um, you know, and stick it to the oil companies, RICO, whatever, without apparently understanding. And I haven't talked to any of the, sign- the 20 signatories, although um, my Close colleague Peter Webster has spoken to several of them. I don't think any of them intended for this RICO thing to persecute people like me. But it's a logical inference because there were university scientists who got caught up in the tobacco RICO thing. And I was one of seven scientists, in addition to Willie Soon, that was... um, investigated by Representative Grijalva, who was going after, and he chose seven people who had testified for the Republicans in recent congressional hearings. That was, I guess, the way we got selected. And we had to, you know, all of our travel, all of our honorarias, all of our speaking engagements, all of our funding. They wanted emails and on and on and on. Um, you know, the implication that we were guilty of something. Um, and, you know, none of us turned out to be guilty of anything, and the whole thing rather fizzled. But it's a black eye on our reputation. But you can see, <laughs> you can tell which scientists would be drawn into any sort of a RICO investigation. It's the people who have been uh, testifying for the Republicans, and that includes me. Um, and the naivete of these scientists, apparently, you know, it was Shukla was the instigator who's um, you know a, a fairly big name in climate research. He's been very successful, although with all of that government funding, it's, imagine, it's hard to imagine how anyone wouldn't have been successful with all that funding. Um, he said, oh, it's, he wants to get more active in policy. And so he decided to support Senator Whitehouse's uh, RICO kind of call. And he got some of his pals to sign on. Some of them apparently signed on, oh, yeah, stick it to him. And others, you know, just signed on to be a mate, you know, or a colleague without really understanding what they were getting themselves into. Um, but it's turned out to be, I think, an enormous black eye, uh, particularly for Shukla, um, not to mention some of the other scientists who signed. So the saga is still playing out. Um, but back to your original point, I think oil company funding of climate research would provide different perspective um, than the government-funded establishment view, and I think these different perspectives um, could help push the science forward. So I'm all in favor of oil company funding climate research. Um, you know, as long as it's disclosed and as long as the scientists um, are free to publish um, whatever they find, um, I think that would be a good thing because they would fund presumably different topics and different ideas and what you can get funded by the government. So I think new perspectives are badly needed um, in the climate science debate, not to mention the policy debate. And if those could be seeded by oil companies or industry or whatever, I think that I agree that would be a good thing. But, you know any scientist at this point, and and it's ridiculous because there's all sorts of scientists taking oil company funding to do research on alternative energy and, and the electric grid and air quality and who knows what other topics. And you don't see them getting any kind of being called nasty names. But if it were climate research, then it would be a terrible thing for a academic scientists to take oil company money, which is ludicrous. So, you know, it's 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 the way it is, and I, you know, hopefully we can change it, and I'm trying to do what I can to change people's perspective on this, but I'm just one tiny voice. <laughs> um, I have a few friends, but, um, you know, <laughs> it, it just makes no sense.
0: Well, I think you've, in the last couple of years, become – one of the the leading voices on this issue so and that's been a good it's been a good development to see that and particularly because you you, you have a story that that indicates intellectual honesty you know, versus having started with some position and just stuck with it dogmatically come you know what may with the evidence but you you mentioned uh... Naomi Oreskes as a potential guest which uh, made me gag inside and so the issue is, but here's my issue with her and my issue with this narrative and what it made me think of when I saw this, because there's one thing to say, it's just unbelievably inappropriate that you would uh, prosecute and or persecute scientists this way and instill a kind of climate of fear. But they're, they're the narrative behind it is this merchants of doubt narrative. But the reality, and Oreskes is a perfect example of this it, from everything I've seen, is that as Zubrin, Robert Zubrin would say there are these merchants of despair, merchants of fear who have systematically misrepresented to the public what is and isn 't known and with what degree of certainty and with what magnitude uh, about global warming and Oreskes is a perfect example she 's one of the manufacturers of consensus, and looking at her work, I am unbelievable I mean, unimpressed would be putting it mild so <laughs> she, she's, well, she's I agree she 's dishonest, there. so she is but she is a merchant of manipulation. And and I think that's the story. So I I think there is an opportunity here to look at hey who it how should science be done here what are the you know who should be funding it how should it be conducted, and in particular how should it be reported, and the whole the whole and and it's been very frustrating to me as as a researcher who isn't an expert in the field because it takes forever to find out who's telling the truth because nobody is specific at all and they like to use these vague things about consensus and global warming is real and all these meaningless statements and if you try to figure out well how big a problem is there if any nobody wants to to give it so in my mind i don't think rico is the the path but i think we should have a public discussion of it just as we should have had more of one on ClimateGate. And I think it's totally appropriate to discuss Michael Mann for that matter. I saw on your website one of, the, people should, we'll link to the, your article, but it's really fascinating to see some of the scientists' defenses of themselves. And one just, I think it was one of the scientists who just said as a throwaway, oh, well, you're not, you weren't very nice to Michael Mann, therefore we can do this. And I think if people look at that, I mean, Michael Mann refused to give information. It's legitimate to say you should give information. You should give information when you're doing government-funded things. So I, I think that I think it's it's much worse than even they're doing this irrational thing to persecute scientists. I think that they have a lot of uh, guilt to answer for, and I think it would be good for that to come out.
1: Oh, I agree. Well, Michael, Michael, well, <laughs> you might want to interview interview Mark Stein.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I'm I'm trying. He's he's, he's hard to track down. If, if Mark Stein, if you're listening, you're you're invited. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean
1: the. Michael Mann is suing Mark Stein for s- talking about the fraudulent hockey stick. Um, <laughs> it's a perfectly reasonable thing to talk about the fraudulent hockey stick because a lot of people don't like it, think it's wrong, <laughs> think it's, you know, shoddy science, think, you know, all sorts of shoddy things were done. And it's not unreasonable in a public debate to refer to the fraudulent hockey stick. And so... Um, I mean, this lawsuit's been going on for four years. (laughs) Mark Stein just published a book um, about Michael Mann and what other scientists have to say about him. And, you know, I I think it was Mark Stein was not a good choice for a person to sue or pick on. Uh, I think Michael Mann made a big mistake there. But, um, you know, people are trying to silence debate, and other opinions, and it, it's a, it's truly a travesty. You can understand why politicians might want to do it, but for scientists to do it is the most, it's the most antithetical thing to science that I can imagine.
0: Well, and, and I would just encourage listeners to Google at random uh, any video by Judith Curry and any video by Michael Mann, and, and throw in Willie Soon for that matter, because he's just been getting so much flack. And I, and though most of you are not professional scientists nor am I just look at the methodology by which they explain things and how careful they are and i think you'll see like one one group of people is generally very careful and explains you know the different kinds of factors including factors that might not make their view true or ex- and the other side just o- bizarrely oversimplifies and misrepresents the issue and and i th- I think that's you know that's one thing that really affected me is just just seeing how people conducted themselves and knowing that a scientist has the sacred obligation to communicate the truth and and what he knows and what he doesn't know or what she knows and doesn't know to us because we don't have access and and watching. Michael Mann, well, listeners can judge for themselves, but I was underwhelmed uh, would be an understatement. Um, so I, I, and I'm you know, very grateful to you for your work, and I just ask, do you have any you know, final closing statements that you'd like, or thoughts that you'd like to leave the, the listeners with? Um,
1: not really, other than um, just this, we, we, we've oversimplified the problem of climate change, and we've oversimplified the solution. And we need to push the restart button to try to get this on track. So we have a more, a broader and more mature perspective on how to think about this problem and how to deal with it. It's just become, you know, sort of cartoon simple and policies are on the table that make no sense. Um, they're politically and economically. Infeasible, and they would have a minuscule impact on the climate, even if successfully implemented. So, you know, it's we need to push the restart button, reframe the problem, and really open up the dialogue. That's what I'm trying to do. I encourage you to visit my blog, climate et cetera, judithcurry.com, or follow me on Twitter at curryja.
0: Absolutely, and we will include all of those links with the show. Dr. Curry, thanks for your work and thanks for coming on the show.
1: Oh, thanks. Thanks for the opportunity. It's
0: been a pleasure. Thanks again to Dr. Curry for being on the show. One thing that strikes me with the scientists we have on this show who are challenging climate catastrophism is how much more rational they are in so many different ways than the catastrophists. And I think I indicated one of these during the interview. One is just that they actually explain things clearly and just as important, I think, respectfully. So when Dr. Curry makes a point, she explains her reasoning. She gives the evidence. She doesn't say, I'm a climate scientist, therefore you should listen to me. I was the head of a department, therefore you should listen to me, nor does she use jargon or try to cow you with her intelligence. It's just just a clear explanation of both her view and about uh, other views, including whatever rationale other people use and why she thinks that's wrong. And and I've noticed this among other people in the show, like Richard Lindzen and John Christie. And it's it's so absent from most of the discussion where people just say the debate is over, and they won't even define the debate, how it was, was resolved, why it was resolved that way, how one side was refuted, unless you have this spectacle of, of people who are just bizarrely overconfident in a viewpoint they don't, can't even define, let alone understand, but they know that their tribe is supported by science with a capital S, and that's that's enough. So I I thank Dr. Kerr and the others for just showing us what it means to be a scientist and what it means to be a scientist who communicates with the public fairly and rationally and respectfully. And, and we need to demand that of all people in science who are who are getting involved in any kind of public issue. So that's my my final thought on that. Again, thanks to Dr. Curry for being on the show and check out her links on the website and uh, particularly the, the blog Climate, etc. is very, very active. Alright, that is it for this week. If you have any questions, comments, love mail or hate mail, email me at alex at progress.net. Make sure to sign up for the newsletter at industrialprogress.com. You can get the book, The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels at moralcaseforfossilfuels.com. And follow us on Facebook or Twitter at, well, there's Alex Epstein, I Love Fossil Fuels, Center for Industrial Progress, and I Love nuclear. So any or all of those, make sure to follow along. Lots of interesting stuff going on these days. Also, if you happen to work for an organization that books speakers, you can go to our page, industrialprogress.com slash speaking, uh, and see if you are interested in either booking me or one of our other people for a speech, including Dr. Pierre Durochet, who's now a senior fellow at Center for Industrial Progress. He is a a, a great speaker to have. All right. So we will be back next week with another great guest and another great topic. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour.
1: Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.